It's good to see everybody, and are you ready for some snow? Here we're supposed to get some more. I hope you like snow. You live in the mountains of Colorado, so I hope you do. Hey, as we continue our series about the real God, we're going to um, talk about an interesting topic today. You know, Solomon as an individual is one of the most interesting, to me, one of the most interesting people in the Bible uh, for a number of reasons, some good, some bad. For one thing, he's the son of my favorite Old Testament character, which is David. Uh, he wrote the book of Proverbs, which is an incredible book. There are lots of wonderful things about him. Um, but one of the most interesting is the fact that he is, according to Almighty God, the wisest human being who has ever walked this planet. God makes that very clear. Let me show you. In 1 Kings chapter 3, at one point, God gave Solomon a blank check. I mean, like nobody else. He said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. That's pretty amazing. And, and uh, Solomon wisely asked for more wisdom. He wanted to lead the people well. So he said, Lord, please bless me with great wisdom, which pleased God. And God gave him more wisdom than, he, than anybody else has ever had. Because look at verse 12. God said, I will give you a wise and discern, discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you nor will there ever be, ever, the most wise person ever to walk this planet. Well, that wisdom was tested just a few verses later. It's an incredible story. Let me just share it with you. Chapter 3, verse 16 goes like this. Then two prostitutes came into the king, who is to settle disputes, came into the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day, after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. And the first lady first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. And thus they spoke or you could say argued before the king. So what is the king to do? How is he to handle this dispute? There's no DNA testing, right? There, there's no... There's no uh, hidden cameras anywhere. There were no eyewitnesses. So how does he handle this? Well, verse 23 says, Then the king said, hmm, let's recap. The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. Hmm. Now, the Bible doesn't say that he said hmm, but I think it's kind of implied. Like, hmm, let's think about that for a moment. And verse 24 goes on. And the king said, and this is kind of crazy, he said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, check it out, verse 25, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Are you kidding me? Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, give, 
Give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. The other one said, well, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived, rightly by the way, appropriately, they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Incredible wisdom. Wiser than any human before him, wiser than any human, including all of us, ever since him. Incredible wisdom. And as we continue our series about the real God, let me take you back to a quote from A.W. Tozer that we began with a few weeks ago. His quote was simply this, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So we've talked about some of the key attributes of God. We looked at his goodness, what that means. We talked about sovereignty, what that means. Last week, I know Rob did an incredible job speaking about holiness. And today we want to talk about his wisdom, his wisdom and what that looks like and what that means to us. You see, Solomon was blessed with unmatched human wisdom, according to God, unmatched by anybody else that's ever walked the earth. And yet, if you stop and think about it, even Solomon, who again, blows all of us out of the water in terms of wisdom, all of us, no exclusions, no exceptions. And yet even Solomon's wisdom was utter simple-minded ignorance. I mean, nothing compared to Almighty God. Nothing compared to God. So, what are we talking about when we talk about the wisdom of God? What does that really mean? And maybe even more practical to us, what does that look like in our lives? How do we respond to it? These are the questions I think we need to wrestle with and I, I want to address today. You know, many people confuse wisdom with knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge, which are both recurring themes throughout Scripture, uh, are related, but they are not synonyms. Uh, don't, don't misunderstand that. They are not. The dictionary, let me show you what the dictionary says. The dictionary says that wisdom is the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. Okay? Knowledge, on the other hand, is information gained through experience, reasoning, or acquaintance. Knowledge can exist without wisdom, but the other way around does not work. One can be knowledgeable, or you could say smart. One can be knowledgeable and yet very unwise. Knowledge is knowing how to use a gun, knowing how the thing works, knowing all about it, ins and outs of it. Wisdom knows when to use the gun and when to keep it holstered. Very different. The book of Proverbs, written by wise Solomon, is perhaps the best place in Scripture to to learn about biblical wisdom, 31 chapters, great thing to study. If you want to spend a month working on it, a month that has 31 days in particular, that would be perfect. Uh, Proverbs is fantastic. In verse 7 of the very first chapter says or talks about both of these words, knowledge and wisdom in the same breath. Again, they're not synonyms, but they do overlap. Look at how God says this through Solomon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
To fear the Lord is to start down the path of knowledge. And knowledge, we need to understand, is a prerequisite to being wise. It's a building block, a foundational building block. You cannot be ignorant, uh, you know, not smart. You cannot be that and yet still wise. Although you can, in reverse, be knowledgeable, have a lot of knowledge, and yet still be unwise. So again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the knowledge can, it doesn't necessarily always, but it can lead to wisdom. But before we go any further down the road of talking about wisdom, let's stop and talk about those first five words of this verse, of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the, the words, the fear of the Lord. You know what? You can do all sorts of studies about this. This concept, this idea of fear of God is often misunderstood and I think um, taught poorly in many places because you can do all kinds of word studies and looking into that. I'm talking, you know, in the original Hebrew or Greek, that kind of thing. Do you know what the concept or what the word in Scripture, when, when we see the word or concept of fear, do you know what that means in the original text, in the original language? It means to be afraid. Exactly what it says. And that's ex- simply what it means. It means exactly what it looks like or what it sounds like it means. And yet a lot of times we're like, no, surely it doesn't really mean that. I mean, God doesn't want us to be afraid. Well, maybe you, you need to really look at that again. Now, it does mean, yes, to have a reverential awe and respect for Almighty God. That is very much true. But it can also literally, needs to literally be understood appropriately. And that is, fear means fear. To be afraid means to be afraid. The Bible talks a lot about the fear of the Lord, and we need to understand what God means by that. Now, it's not necessarily always being afraid that He's going to hurt you. That's not the point. It might more often be more about being afraid that you won't please Him, being afraid that you'll let Him down, being afraid that the relationship will be broken somehow. Let me illustrate it like this. How many of you, think about this, how many of you at some point as a young person had a friend or a group of friends Uh, try to talk you into doing something, you know, X, Y, Z, something that you knew was probably not appropriate. All right, how many of you have had that? Everybody's had that happen. And how many of you in those scenarios have said something like, oh, no way, I can never do that. My parents would kill me. You ever use that phrase? I mean, most of us have said something like that at some point if we can think back to when we were younger. Now, let me ask you, were you truly afraid, literally afraid that your parents were going to physically kill you? Probably not. Somebody in first service said yes. You know, but pro- most of you would probably say, no, not really, truly, literally not. But we said that because in our head, there was a mix of consequences that we did not want to face. And there was also uh, something else combined with that, a sense of potentially betraying or letting down our parents that we did not want to do. And um, so the way you got off the hook with your friends was to say, no, I could never do that. My parents would kill me. But what you literally meant or were really truly communicating is I do actually have a healthy fear of my mom and dad and a fear of letting them down. And that is where the wisdom or the fear of God begins. You know, back to knowledge versus wisdom. Knowledge is what is gathered over time through the study of the scriptures, where wisdom in turn acts properly upon that knowledge. Knowledge understands that the light has turned red. Wisdom recognizes the importance of applying the brakes. There's a difference. See, knowledge sees the quicksand and goes, oh, I know what that is. I know how it works. Uh, You know, I understand it molecularly or whatever. You know, they've studied it, understand. Wisdom 
walks around it. Knowledge memorizes the Ten Commandments. Wisdom obeys them. Knowledge understands or learns about God, but wisdom loves God. There's a difference. There are so many scriptures about wisdom I wish we could share. I don't have time to go into all of them, but let me share with you a few. Psalms 147 verse verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding or wisdom, his understanding has no limit. Zero limit. I love what Paul said in Romans 11. He said, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Well said. Very true. I like what God says to us through Isaiah in chapter 55 of Isaiah, where God said, as the heavens are higher than the earth, which how high is that? I mean, it's an indistinguishable distance. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The gap is immeasurable, in other words. There are several things I want to show you that Job says, and we'll talk about how cool it is that Job is the one who said this in a minute. But let me share with you a few thoughts of Job. Chapter 12, verse 13, he said, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. And then later in uh, or actually earlier in chapter 9, responding to a well-intentioned friend of his friend who was trying to help and give some advice, but as a flawed human gave him, some of his advice was fine, some of it was really flawed. But anyway, to all of that, in chapter 9, verse 2, Job says, Indeed, I know that this, all these things you just said, I know that this is true, but and I love Job's perspective. And his trust, listen to this, just you can hear it. But how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? Later in chapter 28, Job responds to another friend and he says this, But, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can, it, nor can its price be weighed in silver. Verse 20, so where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. I love that phrase. Think about that. He He sees everything under the heavens. That's a pretty amazing thought. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, this is Job talking, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. 
Oh, that's good stuff. That is rich. It is deep. It is, I'll tell you what, it's worth reading, meditating on over and over. I put it in the bulletin, so maybe you can take that home and do just that. And let God speak to you as you look at that and ponder it. But it's also very interesting, again, because these words that we're looking at here are from Job. From Job. And from a human perspective, if anyone has ever had good reason or we might say from a human perspective, if anybody ever had an excuse, a, a legit excuse to complain and to question God's wisdom and say, are you sure? I think maybe you messed up, you know, whatever, or are, are in the middle of messing up. If anybody could ever have said that to God, legitimately, it would be Job. If you know his story, you know what I mean. I mean, he had it all. He had a wonderful family. He had more wealth than he knew what to do with. He had, he had good health. He all kinds of things. I mean, a close walk with the Lord. And then one day, God and Satan had this bizarre, strange conversation. It's, it's really crazy. Verse 8 says this. At one point when they're talking about and debating mankind and whether or not mankind is good and all that, God said to Satan, he said, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan basically responded, well, uh, yeah, of course, because his life's hunky-dory and smooth and easy and everything's going well for him. Take all that away, and then you'll see, because Job's not, he's nothing special. He just has life, on, you know, on cruise control. Everything's easy for him. Take it away, and you'll see. And God says, okay which is hard to understand and fathom how this all played out. But God said, okay. And what Job then went through as God took away that hedge of protection, if you will, and allowed Satan to, to just dismantle Job's life is horrific what he went through. He lost everything he owned. I mean, total fina financial collapse, but way worse than that. Everybody died. His servants all died, but worse than that, his children, all of them died. He was covered in head, from head to toe with boils. His friends, so-called friends, became about as helpful as, you know, as like a mosquito or, or a tick. I mean, they were of no use to him. They gave him all kinds of advice, and a lot of it was worthless. And at one point, his wife, who should be his very best friend, right, his best source of encouragement, she at one point turned to him and said, you know what you need to do? You need to curse God and commit suicide. This is what he had before him. And yet, with all of that, verse 21 of chapter 1, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In the middle of that, all of this, he says, May the name of the Lord be praised. What? In fact, in chapter 13, he famously said, Even if he slay me, I will trust in him. I don't know what's going to happen, but even if I die, even if he takes my life, I will trust in him. And I love, again, back to Job 1, verse 22. It said, In all this, all these things that Job is enduring, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Never did he say, God, why did you do this? What's wrong with you? Shake the fist. He never did that. Now, I would understand if he did. I, if I were in his boat, I might would have, probably would have. 
Most of us probably would have, but Job never did. That's an amazing thought. I had an interesting conversation with a brother, a friend, who we were talking about Joseph recently. And if you remember Joseph's story, you know, he's sold into slavery by his brothers who were jealous of him. And all kinds of terrible things happened. And he got out of the prison temporarily in, in, in Egypt only to be um, uh, lied about by a jealous woman um, or by a woman who wanted to have an affair with him. Jo- it was Potiphar's wife. And when he said no and I cannot do such a terrible thing, she got mad at him and accused him. He tried to rape me and all that. So back into prison he goes and horrific situation. All these terrible things happened to him. If I did the math right, it looks like he endured that for about 22 years. And anyway, I was talking to a friend of mine who said, yeah, and you know, you got to know, Scott, that he complained and got mad at God a lot while he's doing that. I'm like, why do you think that? Because he's human. That's why. And I go, the Bible doesn't say he did that. Well, I think he did just because he's human. I go, well, I don't think he did. And I don't know. I can't prove my point. He couldn't prove his. But with Job, who went through even worse, the Bible says in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. We know for sure Job never said, God, why did you? He never did that. That's amazing. I love that some of our best teaching about God's wisdom and therefore our need to trust him comes by comes from Job, a man who endured probably more than anybody I've ever known, probably more than any of us have known anybody to endure. And he's the one who teaches us about wisdom. Isn't that incredible? I mean, if Job refused to question God and chose to trust in God's wisdom, what could ever give us legitimate reason to do otherwise? You know, Solomon, again, was wiser than any of us, bar none, any human ever. I mean, we think of Abraham Lincoln, or I don't know, you pick a name, some wise person. Nobody has ever been as wise as Solomon. Nobody. And yet, he knew nothing. He was, he was nothing in comparison to Almighty God. And yet, we question God, don't we? And we doubt his wisdom. Most people living Job's life would have struggled mightily, to say the least, to trust God when facing all that he faced. I mean, most people would say, wait a minute, if God has the power to stop all these bad things that are happening in your life, and yet he doesn't do it, he lets you face all of that? Most of us would say, then why the heck would we trust him? And most of our friends would say, yeah, if they were talking to us, giving us advice, yeah, I, I agree with Job's wife. You should probably just curse God and die. Why would you trust somebody who who has power to stop you from enduring all this hardship and, let, and yet lets you endure it anyway. That's, that's foolish. That's dumb. That's like, it's like being as dumb as somebody that would, maybe they only have one son and yet they send their son to go lay down his life and die for a bunch of people who don't deserve, don't even appreciate it. That's dumb too, isn't it? That's the perspective of the world. That's what lots of people would say. That's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 1 when he said, For the message of the cross is foolishness. It's dumb to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and this is a quote from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And then some great rhetorical questions. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. In other words, through the simplicity of things that somebody like me or any other pastor could say, it's still foolishness compared to God. But through that kind of limited foolishness, there were people who were saved. To save those who believe. That's a beautiful thing. God was pleased with that. Verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the wisdom of God. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. And then I love verse 25 where he wraps it up. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In other words, you and I on our very best day don't even come close to comparing to God on his worst day as if he ever had a bad day. But if he did, his worst moment is infinitely better than our very, very, very best moment. I like how J.I. Packer talks about it. He says this, God's almighty wisdom is always active, never fails. All his works of creation and providence and grace display it. And until we can see it in them, we just are not seeing them straight. But we cannot recognize God's wisdom unless we know the ends for which he is working. God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keep a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. Not even to Christians has he promised a trouble-free life. Rather, the reverse. He has other ends in view for life in this world than simply to make it easy for everyone. What is he after then? I mean, that becomes the question. Okay, if, if the main thing is the end goal then what is the end goal? What is he after in your life, in my life personally, or in the world as we know it, or in America in particular, or what is the end goal for all the above? Well, as a limited, finite human like the rest of you, I don't have perfect answers, but I can tell you, in essence, it is basically about relationship. It's all about relationship, a relationship designed to last for all eternity which is a word we're familiar with, but we don't really fully grasp that. I mean, because we have a beginning and an end, we all know that. We can't really understand eternity, but that's what God understands, and that's what it's all about. You see, His ultimate goal is for us to be in perfect relationship with Him, rejoicing in the saving love of Jesus, while God the Father rejoices in the responsive love and worship of us to Him drawn out of us by the beauty of his grace through the good news of the gospel. That's really, that is a long sentence, but that's really what it's about. Us in perfect relationship, worshiping Almighty God, being in a perfect relationship with him for all eternity. That's what matters. And everything else on this earth that we think, you know, our life, which what? If you, if you go against the, the norm and you live to be 100, maybe 100. My grandma, no, my, my grandmother's sister, so what is that? My great aunt, I guess. Anyway, um, she, wonderful lady. She lived to be 106. Even if you do that, that is a blink of an eye. And, a, and, to call it a, and to call a blink 
in comparison to eternity. To call it a blink is actually overstating it. I mean, it is so tiny compared to eternity. And yet we get so hyper-focused on what happens in this life as if it's what matters most. You see, God knows more about how to orchestrate and develop all the above, preparing for eternity, than you and I can even begin to grasp. And, and get this, it's hard to wrap your mind around this, but I tried this week and thought about it for a while, but God not only knows what is going to happen, I mean, He knows every detail, He knows the future, He knows every single thing. He also even knows, if you think about it, every possible variant scenario of what could happen, and every detail of how that would play out. If we went left instead of right, he knows exactly how that would play out, how that would affect these people, and then all the subsequent decisions and consequences to that. Or if we went right, then all these other scenarios, and then the other left. He knows every detail about every person, and he, in his perfect wisdom, knows how to make the perfect decision in every situation. He knows and understands every possible outcome for every possible variable in every person's life. It uh, doesn't matter how many billions there are. He knows every single one of us to that degree. And how all this fits together to form families and societies and nations and world history and everything. And alongside of that absolute incomprehensible knowledge, which we call omniscience, he makes perfect decisions every single time, which is just, I mean, it's incredible to think about. And yet we, while we can kind of go, okay, I, I can agree with that, we still tend to question him and go, yeah, but God, why? When things don't go the way we want them to. God has never, nor will he ever, make a poor or unwise decision Never, ever has God said the words, oops, I didn't see that coming. Or, oh, you know what, in retrospect, I probably should have. Never has that happened. Never will that happen. Now, of course, we cannot see or understand the wisdom of all of his choices. But what would ever lead us to think that we should be able to? Who are we to question God? I want to show you a picture. It's kind of strange looking. That's a microscopic little parasite under a microscope. Let me ask you, does that parasite understand the microscope? Does it understand that human eyeball that's looking? I mean, if it can look back through that, that microscope in reverse direction and see that eyeball, do you think it can begin to understand what that thing is that's looking at it, let alone the rest of the human body that is attached to that eyeball, let alone what a human being is like and who they are and what they think and how they work together and blah, blah, blah. Of course not. The vastness between that parasite and that human is just, you know, incredible. And yet the vastness between us and God is infinitely bigger than the vastness between the human and the parasite. And yet we tend to think that sometimes we can question God, like maybe we know better than him. So, how do we respond? How should we respond to Almighty God? Well, for one, we're told to pursue wisdom. For two, we're told to ask for it. James tells us that in chapter 1 of his book. But ultimately, more than anything else, the main thing is we need to respond with trust. We need to say, Lord, I trust your wisdom. 
I trust you every single time. Not just when that's smooth and easy, but every single time. And there are a whole bunch of other scriptures and illustrations I could share with you. But rather than doing that, I'm going to put this away. And I want to invite and ask you to welcome to the stage my good friends, Clint and Shannon Unruh. Would you put your hands together and invite them up and their wonderful, beautiful daughter, Esther. Um, So, um, all right, we tried to do this unsuccessfully in the first service, and we went a little long, but that's okay. It's an amazing story. But, Clint, how about this? Can you, I said one minute, and you went ten. So how about this time I'll tell you, go five, and you stick with five. All right, so five-minute version of what it is that you and I, we've talked a lot about this, but Clint and Shannon, some of you know them, some of you don't, but they have gone through stuff that most of us can't really fully grasp. Can you give us the five-minute version of, okay. of all Five that? Okay, five-minute. Here we go. Uh, okay, so in life, I like to look at um, our re- relationship and interaction with God as sometimes he gives you a lecture and sometimes he gives you a lab. In the lab, you utilize and put into um, action what he's taught you in the lecture. So eight years ago, um, he began a lab in our lives that has continued till today, and we're still in it. And w- this is how it started. Um, our little daughter here, Esther, um, had a collision with our dog on the driveway, fell back, hit her head. Um, long story short, she had incredible pain from that day um, th- through the next several years of her life, and the doctors thought it was as a result of whiplash. And finally, after years of um, physical therapy and chiropractic care, they, some doctor, I forget who it was, suggested, um, let's have a, an MRI. And um, it was, I think, our pediatrician that suggested that. Long story short, um, we had an MRI. The next day, the head of Dallas Children's Neurosurgery Department calls my wife and says, I need you in my office tomorrow and bring dad with you. Uh, Your daughter needs to have brain surgery. And um, so we end up having surgery uh, through a neurosurgeon that we found in Chicago. Uh, Esther was great. Um, She has a condition called Chiari malformation where... Basically, the brain is too big for the skull, so they have to go in and remove part of the skull and part of her upper two cervical vertebrae and then uh, part of her bottom of her cerebellum brain tissue as well to create more room. Um, After that, she did really well um, for a year, and then after a year, all the pain came back. And right about that time, Shannon started having these weird neurological issues, lots of pain. She went in to see a a, um, neurosurgeon. Um, turns out she needed brain surgery. She's got the same thing. She had brain surgery through the same uh, surgeon that did Esther surgery in Chicago. Um, and she has been left with chronic pain ever since. And this has been eight years of pain and hardship. Shannon wakes up every day feeling like she's got a knife in her head. Um, she goes to sleep feeling that way on her worst days. Uh, she's in the hospital, um, on her best days. She's trying to do the best she can to school our two children and to get through the day. Um, and one time in the midst of all that, um, the doctor, one of the doctors in Chicago had said, we don't think we can do anything else for Esther. She may live with this pain the rest of her life. And they suggested high altitude might help. So we sold our house, uh, moved to, um, uh, moved into a hotel in Green Mountain Falls, lived there for three months. And while we tried to figure out how do we put our lives back together, we knew nobody here. And, um, and then, um, since we've been up here at one point in time, Shannon was in the hospital for a week. And um, after that, um, she had an MRI done in the hospital. The doctor said, hey, we don't know what this pain is. We don't know how to help you. But, oh, also, by the way, we think your wife has myelofibrosis, which is terminal bone marrow cancer. 
And it was one or two days after that, after she got out of the hospital, she's sitting at the light at 64, uh, 24 and 67 going to City Market. And a drunk driver plows into her going about 70 miles an hour, and she's back in the hospital. And after that, you know, it was just, I was kind of at the end of myself. And I'm just asking God, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? And all I could think about is that line in Fiddler on the Roof where Tevi is having his dialogue with God. And he says, I know we're your chosen people, but sometimes I wish you'd choose somebody else. And I felt like that. Like, can you leave me alone? Go work on a testimony in somebody else's life. I got enough testimony. Um, but basically, at the end of the day, you know, you have no choice but to trust him. He's either Lord or he's not. And um, I was in jury duty this week on an attempted murder case, and I, I saw this on the charge, the instructions to the jury, and I wrote it down and thought it was great. It says, even if you disagree with or do not understand the reasons for some of the rules of law, you must follow them. And I thought, you know, if that's the instruction to the jury, um, just like the quote from J.I. Packer up there, it said, you know, you can't begin to understand wisdom unless you know the end for which it is working. And I don't know the end for which God is working in our life, but I do know he is working in our life. So he's either Lord or he's not, and I have no choice but to follow him, to allow him to play this through in my life, whether he ever reveals to me what the plan is or not, and, and sit here and try to be as best uh, um, of a support to my wife and daughter as I can, and hope and pray every day that he will work and change that. And, and in the meantime, and even if he doesn't, do like Job says and say, even if you slay me, I'm still going to trust you. Um, uh, I wish we could. It has been my privilege and honor, Kim and I, to enjoy getting to talk with Clinton Shannon for hours about some of these things. And I wish we could just, if you could hear more than we have time for, if you could hear the heart and details of some of this story and who they are, it, it really is mind-blowing. But Shannon, let me, I know you're having a hard day. This is one of the not-so-good days. And, um, um, but can you, let me ask you this. First of all, I, I know the answer, but let me ask anyway, do you trust God, even in the middle of all this? I, I do. I feel like... Uh, I, I know you do. No, all right, let me ask you this then. I know you do, but talk about why. In the middle of all this, how and why do you trust God in the middle of all this? Um, so in the, in the first service, um, I was reminded of a story this morning of the very first time we got called into the... Uh, neurosurgeon's office um they're like a second home at this point but uh, that first day they show you all kinds of scary stuff and all kinds of scary screens and you know little um esters in there watching it with us right along with us and um, when we left the office um she asked me am i better now <laughs> and um you know your mama's heart just sinks because you know that it is just the beginning um, for her. Um, when we thought we were at a finish line <laughs> at that point with some answers, but, um, you know, God had a different plan. And um, to be honest, you know, I, I, I don't understand his plan. And frankly, we just don't like it a lot of times. <laughs> and, um, you know, we 
walked down the hall and we, I got in the car and strapped her little four-year-old self in her seat. And, and she just says to me, um, you know, I'm processing what I was just told. And she says to me, you know, did you, Mama, did you know that God can move mountains? And, you know, in that moment, I thought, you know, she's not trying to comfort me. She's just speaking the truth that she understands. And, um, you know, that is our Lord. And um, our understand, my understanding uh, does not affect his character in any way. And, you know, that is unchanging. And I can trust that. So, you know, when I don't understand his thoughts, and they are higher than ours, um, you know, I can trust his heart towards us, and uh, I know that, um, you know, we've had our moments of being um, frustrated and um, confused, but uh, early on, I think we resolved to just, you know, understand uh, who our God is and trust his character, um, and, you know, he, he does not leave us or forsake us. Uh, he goes before us. He's our rear guard. Um, you know, all of those promises are true, just as when he says we're going to have tribulation in this world. But, um, you know, take heart. He has overcome this world. And um, praise God for that hope. And, um, you know, I know that he fearfully and wonderfully made this child, and that was with intention and purpose. And, um so, you know, a parent's heart can never understand um, why the Lord would choose choose to have her suffer for years. Who can understand that? But, um, you know, you can accept that for yourself more than you can for your child. That's a hard, hard thing to understand. But um, so in those times, you know, we have just trusted his heart towards us, that he's for us. You know, yesterday as we were talking about this, Clint, you told me um, when I said, why do you trust? One of your answers was, well, what else would I do? I have no other option. And I said, I admire the fact that you feel that way, but the truth is you do have other options. You could do what Job's wife said, that is curse God and die. You could do that, or you could live, but have a, develop a very cynical victim mentality, focused on myself, woe am I, pity party after pity party, frustrated, mad and angry and, you know, all of that. You could be that, and yet you're not. And while you struggle, and, you know, Clint shared more in first service about a couple of times where he's really struggled and been upset with God. Oh, dear God, why? And, I, and, um, and, and has repented of that and felt bad for it. And I'm like, oh, man, I still admire immensely where you're at and how you handle this, how you cope with it. Because um, I don't know where I would be if I were in your shoes. I admire this family so much, uh, how they handle and walk through all of this. But, um, but anyway, I, I just I think it is incredible and it is beautiful to see a family that says, though the Lord may even slay me, like Job said, I will still trust. And this is who they are. This is Clint and Shannon and Esther. And I wish we had more time, but uh, we don't. But get to know them if you, if you haven't already. But would you put your hands together and tell them thank you for sharing their heart and their story. And as the band comes and leads us, will you stand?
and let me lead us in a prayer, and then we're going to worship our awesome God. And let me just lead us in this. Lord, as we prepare to sing and worship you, Lord, would you move in our hearts and touch us as you want? And Lord, would you remind us of a simple and yet so hard to really uh, wrap our minds around concept? And that is this. Lord, would you remind us that we don't have to fully understand you to fully trust you? Oh, Lord, would you help us, as Proverbs talks about, to trust in you with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge you, to trust you. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would heal Clint and Shannon and Esther of these things that they have gone through. But Lord, I thank you for the testimony, the inspiration, the trust that I see in them and who they are in the lives of me and so many others. But God, I pray you would help all of us, all of us as we live today, not only in a group setting with, you know, hundreds of people around us, but in other moments when we might be all alone and and the questions may surround and Satan may tempt us with thoughts that go the wrong direction. Lord, would you remind us even in those moments and help us in those moments to trust you with all we've got, knowing that when you tell us in Romans chapter 8 that all things work together for good, all things for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that you mean that and that nobody nobody has ever gotten a raw deal from you. Lord, would you help us to learn how to trust you in these ways and even when we don't understand you, to lay it all down and just say, Lord, we wish for this, but if you give us that instead, we will trust you. So Lord, help us in these ways and help us to right now as we think about these thoughts and as we worship you to surrender our whole heart to you. If there be anybody that needs to give their life to you, Lord, would you help them take that step and walk forward today? Lord, whatever it is, that a decision that needs to be made, would you lay that on people's hearts that as we worship and honor you and praise you and we pray in Jesus' name and everybody together said...